You're listening to Ecomonics, a Debutify podcast, your resource for one-of-a-kind insights into the world of e-commerce and business in the modern age. This is Joseph. I'll be presenting a wealth of industry knowledge from interviews with successful business people and our own state-of-the-art research. Your time is valuable, so let's go. Good to have you here. We're back with the continuation of our business model roundup from a few episodes ago. We've got 15 to do today and another 15, not tomorrow, but soon. Closure is important to me. Now, before we move forward, I want to address something that might be nagging away at a few or all of you. A lot of these business models may not have anything to do with what you intend to do or that they don't tie directly into e-commerce. So here's my position on the matter. For one, this is free, so there's that. Two, the theme we established from episode one is that e-commerce is commerce, and commerce is trade, and trade is a fundamental human function. So while odds are you might not adopt a number of models from this list, what's the harm in getting a better understanding of the ecosystem in which you will have to cohabitate? Your business doesn't exist in a vacuum, does it? Does it? Let us know if it does. Podcast at debutify.com. First up is Gatekeeper. The main source of this list, as before, is Four Week MBA. But I am making a conscious effort to check content elsewhere to support the main article. Many of the large companies we talk about often, Google, YouTube, Amazon, are considered gatekeepers. They are the middle people between the business, small businesses usually, and the potential customers. On Four Week MBA, the full list they provide in the example includes as well Apple, Facebook, Instagram, LinkedIn, TikTok, Netflix, Uber, Spotify, and Pinterest. This would be a good example of a business I don't expect listeners to create from scratch, though don't hesitate to surprise me. These are, however, key to our success. The concept of a gatekeeper goes back a long way. A book publisher or movie studio would be the deciding factor between one's success and failure. One can understand the necessity of a person whose job is to filter potential working relationships because they wouldn't want to have the resources to accommodate everyone. And they'd also want to ensure the people that they do spend resources on would be successful. While they're still around, especially in big-budget film, for instance, they no longer have dominance over an industry. Now that creators can receive funding directly from their audience, for instance, the role of gatekeeping can be relegated to the masses. And believe me, studios do listen to their fans. There is also a semi-relevant variation in gatekeeping, which is within a company. So if I'm reaching out to an organization, receptionists, secretaries, that kind of thing, they act as gatekeepers in that they know what the managers have to focus their time on and as a result, do filtering on their behalf. According to Indeed.com, there are four highly popular, relevant gatekeeping trends, search engines, social media, influencers, and gatekeeper marketing all of which tie into the companies listed. Indeed goes on to describe how each one is a relevant gatekeeper. Search engines filter information. Their aim, in theory, is to rank the best results at the top, leading users to better information. We combat this with good SEO. Okay, well, we combat this by also providing good information, but we also combat it with good SEO. So that's more search-friendly. Social media turns it over to the masses, each person having a say in whether or not content will be shared to other friends on their platforms. We address this in two ways by being in full control of our own social media presence to keep the trolls at bay, and this is speaking as a former troll, 
and to provide content that former troll, okay, I, you know, you never know, and to provide content that people will want to share organically. Their point on influencers, I must say, surprised me. Because usually when I hear the word influencer, I think of Instagram influencers, which are also gatekeeping in their own way. But Indeed.com points out that there are junior employees whose job is to research potential options for a manager or executive. If you made it past the receptionist, they would be the next level you face before you encounter the boss. When they say gatekeeper marketing, they are keeping receptionists and assistants in mind when they come up with a proposal. As you can see, the term means a lot of things and a more fundamental approach would be to think of them as filters or curators. One more takeaway before we move on. There is a key part of this that we need to keep in mind. It's easy to think that a gatekeeper, relevant to our purposes, is just a roadblock to our success. But if you refer to the list of big players, the one thing they all have in common is they generated the resources for us. Facebook gave us the user base and their data, so it's only fair that we have to play by their rules. Unless their rules aren't fair, but what are you going to do? I'm not saying they are, I'm just saying that's what you're gonna do. Next up is heavy franchised business model. Now, from the last set, I spoke about how McDonald's is a blend of franchise and company operated. Now, here's something new I learned having gone further down the list. In 2018, the total amount of McDonald's that were company operated were 2,770. The total that were franchised out were 35,085. While not Totally important to explaining how this works. I do want to report that there was a decline in revenue from 28 billion in 2013 to 21 billion in 2018. In that time, we have seen uh, surgeons in new food options. Uber Eats, those DIY boxes where you get the ingredients and have to make the meal yourself. A&W. Well, there's plenty, well, A&W's been around for a while, but I would say they had a resurgence more recently. Anyways, while there's plenty of content regarding franchise businesses, or business models in general, finding one that qualifies as a heavy franchised one was a bit trickier, but I managed. These additional insights come from marketrealist.com, who took a look at Papa John's International, who by the end of 2014, the company had 735 self-owned restaurants and 3,928 franchised ones. Here's the process. The company, Papa John's, examines the business background previous restaurant experience, and then examines finances before approving the application. Then, the prospective franchisee goes through a training program themselves, Or they get an operator who would also have to be a shareholder, or at least someone who could gain equity in the franchise. Put another way, someone who stands to gain a return beyond just a paycheck. Assuming everything goes well, the franchisee pays 25 grand for the first restaurant and 5 grand for any additional ones then 5% of the sales to the company in royalties. There's even more to stipulate if it's an international agreement, but I think the point here has been made. Franchises are a major investment of both time and money, but the brand recognition gets people into the store. The next one is a mix of a business model and a philosophy. It's the humanist enterprise business model. Four-week MBA associates this with one, Brunello Cuccinelli, whose fashion business is based on three key pillars. As the article puts it, Italian craftsmanship, sustainable growth, and then exclusive positioning and distribution. The first two we can intuit just hearing the word, but let's focus on the distribution strategy. Here are three main channels. Retail distribution channel, aka direct distribution channel by way of directly operated stores, wholesale monobrand channel, and wholesale multi-brand channels. Retail takes 55%, wholesale monobrand is only 5%, 
and wholesale multi-brand is 38% of the revenue. The philosophy side of this is what you can read up on at length if you go to investor.brunellocuccinelli.com, as I have. He says, and I quote, I envisage humanistic capitalism as a great harmony within which profit, giving back, guardianship, human dignity, and the ethics of truth coexist and enrich each other. The first thing I was wondering about this man's story was if he had accumulated wealth before being able to create this business venture. And what I learned is he had received a loan from investors simply by the quality of his character, which he had cultivated over the years of being raised on a farm. Let's review the tenets of this philosophy and ask ourselves, what can we do to uphold this idea? He speaks of moral and economic dignity, paying each person a wage they can live and thrive on. Now, one can understand the pushback of someone just trying to look at the numbers and say, you know, you pay people based off the value of the problems they solve. And it's correct. But to grant people a higher wage is to go above paying someone to now investing in someone. A higher wage, on average, promotes better work ethic, secures loyalty, and improves the person's quality of life, which gets you a better work ethic. They talk about trying to live in harmony and without harming creation, which I think is going to be difficult to fully implement, but one should still try. We need to harm living things in order to eat. There's only so many ways I can say that, whether it's a plant or an animal. But what we can do is limit suffering and be grateful for what we've been given. They speak of a workplace that heightens one's dignity, preferring a setting where they can look at the sky and landscape. Maybe their house is off in the distance. Of course, this particular tenant is more in the hands of the worker now, but a shared working environment, made under the right circumstances with the right people, is a wonderful thing, and I would be happy to commute to it. They speak of fair working hours, which is making sure if people are pouring their soul into something, they do it on company time. While Brunello Cuccinelli was the only example provided by the main list, I did recall seeing another story that operated along these lines. If you look up the story of Dan Price, he was confronted by a harsh realization that one of his employees at Gravity Payments, a credit card processing company, said to Dan's face, you're ripping me off. Dan hadn't considered that his own financial discipline meant other people were only getting by. There is a long, causal chain reaction of why things were this way. His own business was nearly wiped out due to the economic recession at the time. So one can understand his own protective policy. In response to this revelation, he started raising wages. He found that, when he implemented the 20% raise in 2012, that year his profit growth was as much as last year, due to increased productivity. There's more to the story, including the fact that his brother sued him over this. So far, his decision to take a massive self-pay cut and dramatically increase the pay for his employees is going well, and is inspiring others. And one doesn't necessarily need to justify it from a moral perspective. I mean, I'm not saying don't do that, but I mean, there's no issue with it or anything. But one can justify it from a pragmatic perspective. Happiness creates energy, and that energy turns into productivity. So, if people are paid enough to make them happy, that is a pretty good investment. The next one up is enterprise business model built on complex sales. The first insight from this section is that if you look at the customer acquisition cost, the lowest cost would be a viral marketing campaign intended to disseminate through the online channels through user interaction. The chart assesses it can be as low as a dollar whereas a more atypical marketing operation would be $100. In both these cases, the target is a consumer. In the center is a dead zone, where small businesses reside. In here, the difficulty of targeting them is that money needs to be spent, but 
they themselves only have so much capital, and their ceiling remains low until they become a larger enterprise. Then, the chart switches from marketing to sales, as in cost to acquire sales from other businesses. The low end is 10,000, and the high end is 10 million. It would cost you tens of millions of dollars to acquire sales contracts with big businesses and governments. The central tenet to this business model is, you're shooting for the top, and there's nowhere along the way that's an acceptable destination. Either you succeed or you don't. Businesses that take on high-profile clients need high-profile sellers, and as such, attract the most capable agents on the market. According to lucidchart.com, the first main tenant of this is to understand that, in spite of the scale of the work involved, it's a highly personal relationship involving trust and attention. In short, complex sales is also referred to as enterprise sales. The article goes on to draw a distinction between the two. An enterprise sale is characterized by high risk, many stakeholders, a long sales cycle of upwards of six months, high investment and complexity. A transactional deal, on the other hand, is low risk, fewer stakeholders, a short sales cycle, single products for sale, and services that are both marketing-driven. Enterprise sales has evolved over time. In the 50s, it was a scripted, tell-you-what-you-need approach. In the 70s, it was more about listening to the client and develop solutions based on what they say. Now, it has continued to build on that idea into more of an advisory position. So imagine a doctor listening to someone talk about their symptoms and only prescribing medication to deal with the symptoms. Then, picture a doctor who understands the underlying causes of the symptoms and prescribes solutions to the root problem, which may also be medication, but I don't know, I'm not a doctor. The article continues by breaking down a four-step process to this. First is discovery, a questioning process where the rep talks to the client to find out what the issues are and what variables are involved. You then go to diagnosis, which I didn't realize was the term until after my doctor analogy, I swear. This is where you've taken the time to process their provided insights and begin figuring out what your company can do to solve their problems. Then there's design, where you have a dialogue with the potential client to determine the solution together, as no two clients will be the same. And finally, delivery. Keeping in mind, it's more than a paper sale. You're obligated to continue to track and measure the progress as things come along. The next one is a continuation of what Twitter is up to. It's the instant news model, assisted by the 2017 increase of 280 characters over 140. Twitter's immediacy has given it two edges in news distribution. It can immediately report the news, and users can receive it right away. It can also be the news, as high-profile users can make announcements on it, such as they're leaving Twitter. Next up is a lock-in business model. This is where purchasing a product puts the customer in a position enviable to some, frustrating to others. That position is when a consumer purchases a product or service that disincentivizes them from using competing products, somewhat or entirely. The example they cite is Apple, in that their in-house devices pair perfectly with one another and the complementing software, but don't get along so well with other non-Apple devices. Some people may appreciate the ease of use. Having a whole Apple ensemble can be efficient and effective. So it depends on the inclinations of the individual. My personal observation is that Apple products are meant for mostly front-end users, both for work and leisure, where back-end users will more likely gravitate towards smartphones and Windows or Linux. One upshot to this is that some Apple services, like Apple Music, are still accessible from the outside world. And so users can get a sense of the company's MO in terms of aesthetic and functionality. According to their 2019 annual report, 
Apple's revenue streams are 70% services, 54% iPhone purchases, 9% iMac, 8% iPad, and 9% wearables and home accessories. The wearables and home accessories are the most recent success, with an increase of $12 billion in revenue between 2017 and 2019. A few other examples that come to my mind include video game consoles. It's taken a long time for crossplay to become an accepted norm. For the most part, purchasing a console means committing to the value of it. There's also subscribing to Adobe Creative Suite. It boosts productivity if you're using the softwares, especially in that they support one another. Using Google services encourages the users to use other services, again, due to cross-pollination. Personally, the weakness I have experienced with this kind of model is the feeling of missing out. Or in one case, knowing full well I was missing out. When I subscribed to the Creative Cloud, I was constantly in a state of self-loathing because I didn't maximize the value. I barely broke even. It can be frustrating to a customer to want to use a service and have the other aspects of the service gnawing away at you, like using Word and expecting to have to use a whole office suite, or having a membership to a fitness gym and only taking spin classes. I believe the seller should be the one always looking for ways to provide value to the customer and not put pressure on the customer to find it themselves. Following that, we have management consulting, which points to Accenture, A-C-C-E-N-T-U-R-E. And I have to say, the scale they operate is a lot larger than I would have expected. Globally, they have approximately 425,000 people in their company. I, I don't know. I mean, I've checked, I've double-checked. It, it blows my mind. Their revenue is split among five operating segments. 21% financial services, 17% health and public service, 27% products, 13% resources, and 19% communications, media, and technology. Accenture is considered one of the most successful consulting firms in the world. And on top of that, also provide information publicly as a way of providing for the net good and enticing prospective clients looking at the website. If this is what they're giving away for free, what can they do for me at a premium? Consulting, I should say, is a great resource anyone with expertise in their field should be willing to wield. In my time as a freelancer, I would offer my consulting services for free. Frankly, I enjoyed it. It gives me a chance to sit with someone in a no-pressure setting and enjoy a fresh conversation where I have a lot to offer. I was also happy to do it just for the experience, and in many cases, it would end up a business arrangement down the line. No matter what, consulting is a great tool in your arsenal, and I couldn't think of a reason not to offer it, so long as you make it worth your time. Market maker model ties into the feeder model we discussed last time. Again, referring to Uber with this one. Let's go over it here as it is referred to as a flywheel effect. Uber supplies a platform and drivers hop on board. The drivers lower the wait times and fares, which leads to more riders. More riders per hour means higher earnings potential for drivers, which leads to more drivers, completing slash perpetuating the cycle. This would also be the time to note that dynamic pricing is also factored into this operation. In a static price point, or flat rate, the price is the same no matter what. If all Uber rides had the same price per distance, regardless of time and proximity to major population, I mean time of day, you would see an effect where certain situations it's too expensive to use, but other times where it's an absolute steal. As a freelancer, I would do flat rate, which puts the pressure on me to be as efficient as I could with my time so that I could have a higher average hourly rate. Uber, on the other hand, uses dynamic pricing based on peak times of service and customer segmentation. So that way, the users have to consider the cost of convenience. If a live show lets out and about a thousand people need rides, well, you can only imagine how many people are going to be looking for an Uber at that time. In a way, it functions like a market where the supply and demand are in constant flux, as it should be. 
Multi-brand business model is an interesting story laid out here. Four-week MBA tells of a war between Caring Group and LVMH, both of whom wanted Gucci. What's surprising is that neither company were luxury brands to begin with. Caring was into leverage trading, and LVMH were in construction. Caring eventually went out and took over Gucci. LVMH ended up acquiring Fendi. Both these French companies have a large set of brands they oversee. On one side, their multi-brand strategy uses some centralization, brand collaborations, economies of scale, supply chain, and branding initiatives. Other elements are more decentralized, individual brand decision-making and fostering creativity. The part that surprised me about this is I always expected luxury to beget luxury. But in both these instances, the liquidity they earned from their trade-based operations allowed them to purchase these brands at all. Let's keep going. We can certainly find a lot to say about the multi-business model. The example listed here is Amazon, whose pillars are their first and third-party selling platform, their advertising, AWS, and Prime. As a consumer, it may not seem obvious what business Amazon has selling cloud storage to the same people they're selling Kindle books to. But that's because they aren't. It's more of a case of, this service is something they'd need to use for themselves anyways, so they might as well provide it publicly. As we said before, it's a revenue stream with a better profit margin, as a digital service is easier to mark up. LinkedIn, a social slash professional network, it's more professional than social. A social professional network, there we go. It's an example of a multi-sided platform where the business supports two distinct groups of people who are in need of one another. On the one side, you have the professionals looking to get hired. They're incentivized to join LinkedIn to gain connections and find a job in their career field but LinkedIn can offer them learning and development programs. On the other side are HR managers who scour LinkedIn for the best candidates. LinkedIn offers them hiring services. A small but still notable benefit to LinkedIn is that conduct is important. I read online that people using LinkedIn to ask people out on dates was frowned upon. Personally, I think it would be hilarious if there was a dating option since professionals may want to date one another. Call it power coupling if you have to. We've talked about Lyft and Uber on the first part, how they are feeder models, and also spoke about Uber in the mark maker model. Multimodal, M-U-L-T-I-M-O-D-A-L, was on the verge of being a tongue twister for me, but I made it out. So Lyft is the example used in multimodal, where one platform offers different variations on the service. So we know the advantage riders have not needing to invest in a vehicle, which is a large cost, and that drivers can earn additional income to offset the cost of the car. And we also know people can even own vehicles specifically for others to drive an Uber, lowering their costs even further. The multimodal part of this is that Lyft is also providing bike sharing and electric scooters, with autonomous cars being the next major breakthrough coming down the pipe. Another approach to this would be to consider Uber's subscription service. According to an article on HackerNoon.com, Uber's main goal has, along with Lyft, to be able to provide a cost-effective and time-efficient alternative to owning a vehicle. Thank goodness for them too, I might add. I just opened my Uber app to confirm what I read on Hacker Noon, and it doesn't exist yet in Canada. Not being a frequent Uber user myself, I'm in Toronto, we, we got pretty decent public transportation. They've expanded into grocery delivery, as well as restaurant food, and of course, their usual bread and butter. The subscription service, launched in the US, is a multimodal in that they wanted to diversify the revenue stream. By creating a value proposition for the user, it opens up a part of their market to a more cost-effective method based on their usage habits and revenue. One question I think is important to ask, for the sake of clarification. Is Amazon multimodal? The answer is yes, but 
I think the point here is to hone in on an application like Uber and Lyft, where all the variations are in one place. I go onto Amazon.com for shopping, and it takes a bit of intuition to seek out AWS, not knowing about it before. You'd have to scroll all the way to the bottom and squint to see the other services. Not exactly promoted front and center like Uber groceries. Multi-product, or octopus business model, is next up. And the implications of an octopus suggest that. While there are many endpoints, there is something that keeps them together. The example they provide is OYO. That's capital O, capital Y, capital O. Which is a living space aggregator, specializing in hotels, but also services private townhouses and vacations. They've expanded it to a number of other services, but you'll see that they're all connected under the same umbrella. YoHelp, a self-help tool that supports check-ins, checkouts, and payments. OYO Life, which aims to provide millennials and young professionals with homes and private long-term rentals. Collection O, providing booking and renting services to business travelers. Pallet, which focuses on staycations. Silverkey, which provides services to corporate travelers. And Capital O, which provides booking services. You can see how they're able to provide support to other hotel companies at a price, turning over some revenue even if they don't themselves own the property. At least not yet. On Demand is next on the list, and it refers to Netflix. And we've discussed previously on our backend episode, Netflix has a negative cash flow because it continues to invest in licensing and original content. It should be mentioned that in 1997, the genesis of Netflix was to mail DVDs. But this was on a fixed schedule and didn't fully integrate on demand until later. On demand, at least as far as TV goes, has changed a lot of the way TV content is created. I grew up watching TV and always expected commercials. But writers had to keep these commercial breaks in mind and create dramatic moments or act breaks so that there's enough investment on the viewer to carry interest to the other side. Original series on Netflix or YouTube Red are not created with commercials in mind, so there's more of a flow to the storytelling. Dramatic TV, aka dramas, have a job to do. At the end of the episode, something important has to happen to hook viewers onto the next episode. Now, if a show is being written and they're expecting viewers to be back next week, the hook needs to be strong and it gets people talking about the show in between episodes. Multiply this by 10 for season enders. However, original programming often will simply release all the episodes at once, so the hooks are still there, but because there's so little downtime, it changes the impact of these hooks. What's suddenly critical is what they do to close out a season, as that will need to carry people for a year. Longer, even, depending on the still murky waters of online media distribution. I bring this up because it's important to acknowledge that, at first, on-demand is seen as a way for people to get content they're used to viewing one way, but... Once they're engaged in the format, that's when the format itself will create new demand and new expectations. You can always tell when I'm weighing in personally on something, and that was no different. I felt it was important to take a 30k foot overview. If you go to trendhunter.com, there is a massive list of on-demand services, including, but not limited to, flowers, fuel, ice cream, manicures, doctors, booze, groceries, which my partner and I tried out recently and had a good opinion on, Lawn care, nursing, kittens, tacos, tutors, and locksmiths. Oh, and Uber, but we talked about that. Okay. The last one on the list for today is more feel-good than I expected. I mean, I was just counting to 15. We have the one-for-one business model. This is the kind of humanitarian business model that creates profitability and contributes to the net good in a big way. The first pillar, the consumer, buys a pair of shoes off the website. In this example, it was Tom's Shoes. Tom's Shoes sends another pair to kids in developing countries. It gives customers a positive feeling for one. 
but also makes them natural advocates for the company. So whenever somebody says, hey, Joseph, I see you put on shoes today, I can say, even better, this time I help someone else put on theirs. The affiliates are the second pillar, who by promoting the business, they earn money knowing they've helped get shoes to kids in need. The third pillar, the NGO, expands its operation by providing the distribution for Tom's shoes. So on the one hand, one supposes the profit margin is lower because you can only sell shoes for so much. Still a lot, mind you, but you know, everything's got a cap. So the fact that one purchase leads to two costs means the profits are razor thin. On the flip side, marketing is where Tom's shoes can thrive because customer word of mouth is so passionate. The bottom line is, and you can see how it refers to earlier about human capitalism, doing good is profitable. Think about it. That's another chunk of them down. Continue credit to the mega list provided by 4weekmba.com. We'll have one more episode to go before we wrap this up. As always, your feedback is treasured. So contact podcast at thebeautify.com. Talk to you soon. You might have found this show on many number of platforms. Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, Stitcher, or right here on Debutify. Whatever the case, if you enjoy this content and want to help us thrive, please take a few moments to leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you think is best. We also want to hear from you, so whether you think you'd be a good guest or want to weigh in on anything related to our show, you can email podcast at debutify.com or connect with us on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and TikTok. Finally, this podcast is created by the passionate team at Debutify. If you're ready to take the plunge into e-commerce or are looking to up your game, head over to Debutify.com and see how it can change your life and the lives of many through what you do next. <laughs>